five, six, seven, eight. everyone welcome to the film room we have a special guest with us today jj hello today we'll be discussing the musicals really kind of the postmodern musicals like the like 2001 when was moulin rouge 2001 2001 yeah 2001 on and that that whole rash kind of ended did end with the producers did that kill it I wouldn't say that because I, I mean, it, the musical, it, I, I would say it's still kind of sputtered along. There've been, true, I mean, they, they, they knock them out every once or one or two every year. So, true. and with, with Les Miserables making a ton of money and Mamma Mia making a ton of money, I wouldn't say that, uh, I wouldn't say the, the genre is anywhere near dead. It's just, it was a really big boom for a moment. Yes. It's, it's out of fashion, but it's a style that goes out of fashion from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. Just like swing. Yeah. Hey. Oh, 90s. <laughs> I was raised on Benny Goodman and uh, Louis Armstrong, so for me, I'm always going to be a fan of that music. No, I live in the town that the Cherry Pop and Daddies were from, so. <laughs> really? They're from Portland? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're, you're. Oh, that city. Don't start. Don't start. <laughs> the dream of the 90s is a lot well. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. The radio of the 90s is alive. I'll at least give you that. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually reading an inter- a good interview with uh, Dan Wilson of Semisonic. He was asked what he thought of Closing Time. And he said, you know, he asked, he was asked, did he ever get sick of that song? And he was like, no, it, it it's a song I'm proud of. It made me a ton of money people really love it why would i be tired of it that's a good answer yeah, yeah. but yeah let's dip into this before we do it i think I, there is one point that i want to make about kind of what happened with the musical before that point because i always like to interject backstory and because for a, quite a little bit of this cast i'm gonna have to go silent there are several films i did not get to see for this cast that i was planning on watching so disclaimer coming up but the musical, it, it's kind of interesting. Whenever people gripe about how Jaws led the era of the blockbuster and killed the smart movies, people tend to forget something. There were blockbusters before Jaws, the before the special effects blockbusters. There were blockbusters. And what were they? They were the musicals. Hollywood history is littered with story upon story upon story of how musicals were so big. I'm someone who's an aficionado for looking back through old movie listings, and that's that's very clear, just how important that genre was up until a certain point. You look at how important the sound of music and West Side Story were to cinema in that day, and they were just enormous. Or even going back farther, uh, Busby Berkeley. I mean, Busby, Busby Berkeley. Berkeley created whole new ways of filming uh, just to just to film musicals. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, 
And your actors back then, you had to be able to carry a tune for a lot of these actors to succeed and, you know, for their careers to succeed. It was just so omnipresent. Uh, you know, you look at the films of Fred Astaire. I mean, God, there's so much. I mean, discussing the backstory of the musical is akin to really discussing the backstory of the movie industry. Uh, what I'm fascinated by, though, is the implosion of the musical because... Y'all, there are so many movies that lost so much money, the mega flops of their day, that are completely forgotten to all of us. I mean, would anybody perk up and go, yeah, I know what that is if I was to reference Star? Now you got me there. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, biography of Florence Lawrence and kind of a disaster. Uh, I, I don't even know if that was who it was about. I'm, I, I'm, That's like what I think it was about. It's... It was kind of a debacle. Um, Fox uh, actually was limping along for several years, uh, really probably right up until Star Wars, because they invested so heavily in a string of musicals trying to recapture the sound of music that failed miserably. So yeah, the, the musical the musical went through a pretty quick crushing. I would suggest that daring to do Paint Your Wagon and cast Clint Eastwood in a musical along with Lee Marvin. But the thing is, even uh, even during the time where the musical was supposedly dead, we still had uh, you oh, had yeah. you had Yentl. Yes. Uh, you had the Little House of Horrors. I was going to bring up. Horrors, I was going to bring up Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors actually ma majorly influential in that genre come staying alive really <laughs> but not period. staying alive that was a terrible movie <laughs> oh no sylvester stallone co-writes and directs the sequel to saturday night fever that happened people i didn't know with, about uh, this with yeah. uh vessel of whorehouse you also you have burt reynolds who was at the time legendarily not someone who was comfortable with singing but you know i i love vessel of whorehouse yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it helped that they paired him alongside Dolly Parton, who, well, actually could do everything they asked her to do. And that's where we got the infamous I Will Always Love You, which Whitney Houston, uh, in my opinion, killed. Yeah, yeah. I uh, think about it is uh, Parton wrote that song under very specific circumstances about a very specific situation in her life. And uh, namely that she was ending her professional partnership with Porter Wagner. And uh, yeah, Parton's version has the strength. Houston's version is just everything that I hate about a lot of 90s power ballads. Yeah. Um, but Parton laughed her way to the bank in the end. As the songwriter, she got the royalties. So, <laughs> and, and actually, while we're touching a little bit on the history of musicals, I, I was hoping to address something, too, because this is how I'm going to be looking at uh, how I tend to look at musicals, because I am someone who came out of stage. I have done a lot of musicals, which I have no background in. So please do. Yes. Um, OK, so there is a difference in function in songs between opera and a musical. The way a musical is supposed to work is that and i'm going to you know maybe use what is one of the most successful musicals of the last couple of years uh frozen to explain what i'm talking about have you guys seen frozen so am i oh, okay, yeah. spoilers? okay so i'm Absolutely. okay with some spoilers Loved it. okay so when the the iconic song of that you know let it go you know she's scared she runs out 
And she is at such an emotional peak that the idea is in a musical when it works well is that your emotions are supposed to be at such a, a, a just a, a, a zenith that there's no way that you can get out what's inside of you by just talking. So then you sing. And in the case of of Let It Go, she starts out scared and then goes through this adventurous journey. And by the end, she's she's defiant. There's character and there's change and there's life to that song, which is why people respond to that so well. And they don't Great. even really think of it as a musical because it's just this song that just works in the structure perfectly. It's 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 starting to become pretty omnipresent on the pop stations, weirdly enough. Uh, not weirdly enough, it's an amazing song. And I think right. enough enough people have seen the film that the context is there in their heads. You're right. That's an absolutely pitch perfect example of what they're supposed to do, unless you're right. citing it as an example of where it's not, in which case I'm still going to defend my view. Well, no, no, no. I think it's a, it is. It's a, it's a perfect, uh, I, there is not a song in Frozen that if you took it out that the structure would hold. If you can take a song out of a musical, then it shouldn't be there. Right. Yeah. Um, even like the, the stuff that there's a couple of songs in there that feel very modern Broadway, like that, that whole love is an open door. I'm very, I like that song a lot because it very much feels like a modern uh, theater song, but it has its function because these are two people that, you know, sure. One of them might be lying, but the other has never been around a boy before. And it's these, again, there's all of this, this raw emotion that has to be processed. So, uh, you know, and you know, the the whole, do you want to build a snowman? That song functions as a montage of a whole person's lonely, two people's whole lonely lives. It's, you know, it's a beautiful song, but it's also heartbreaking because of the subtext. So then you look at, say, uh, an opera. In an opera, you know, everything is sung, so not everything has to necessarily be earth-shattering because every, you know, eventually you have to get to exposition. You have to get the, you know, would you please pass me the pepper, you know, <laughs> and these things. So you're going to have songs in there that are not necessarily life-altering. I mean, there are, you know, there are operas out there like Carmen and such that everything is sort of the the pop culture you know, you're going to recognize everything and what you're listening to. You're like, I didn't even know I knew Carmen, but you're sitting there going, because you, you've heard the melodies over and over and over. So the lens that I usually look at is if something is a, really good musical is whether or not the songs are integral. I mean, another good example of what I, I like to think of as a, a, a sort of a perfect episode. Are you guys Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans at oh, all? Oh, hell yeah. Of course. Of okay. course. So, of course, the infamous, uh, uh, the infamous musical like? episode. Yeah. yeah. If if you've seen... So that was one of the first episodes I saw, and I was like, okay, well, that was kind of a cute little thing. Maybe I'll watch some more Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Then when I went back and watched it after I'd seen the series and realized what Joss Whedon had managed to do up to that point is he had created such a complicated narrative that there was no way for these people to get past in character the the blocks that they had put up against each other. So he creates this this device where everyone has to sing their subtext and it opens up the show. That's pretty damn cool. It is. I don't think the show actually ever got anywhere near that level of quality again, sadly. 
I have to admit, I've only seen... Uh, that was also the first full episode I had seen. Because um, I had just found out... Kind of found out who Joss Whedon was after Dr. Horrible. Mm. And I wanted to go see you know another musical thing he had done. And I really loved that. So I started watching the series. I'm still in season two. Oh, well, when you get to that episode well. again, it's going to mean a lot more to you. Trust me. Oh, yeah. I fi- it's... I figured there was a lot that I was missing, and yeah, there's a lot of spoilers in that. So I've I've had it a little bit spoiled, but that's okay. I watched it backwards. When I watched the series, for some reason, I saw... So they were watching two episodes. They're playing... The television station was playing two episodes back-to-back. So the first two episodes I saw were the very first episode and the musical episode. And then I would watch <laughs> one episode from season one and then one episode from season six. Oh, my gosh. Now, the what thing is about doing? it... Because I watched it in such a weird way, I have—I will say I have an affection for all seven episodes, all seven seasons, excuse me. I'm, I, I don't really, I don't feel that the show dropped off too much because the, even though the, the plot and the, la- the end of the series might not be as strong as earlier, I was so invested in the characters and the soap opera aspect. I, they could have done anything. I was too, but I just, I don't know that, that I guess it was because I had been watching to that point and so much of that season that came afterwards was just like, please stop hitting me over the head with a two by four. Please stop hurting me because you're really hurting me. Yeah. Okay. So sorry to tangent, but, uh, but we tangent. This is what we do. (laughs) You know, you mentioned little shop of horrors. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the music team on that, there's there are two people who we're going to be discussing at more length later on this year. That's kind of a hint for a future episode. Yeah. There's a very specific set of films that they were involved in that we're going to be discussing. Um, films that we have definitely seen already. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, you, you had that. And uh, uh, the musical was far from dead, but it just there wasn't the energy to it. Really, I mean, Moulin Rouge, for some reason, even if that's a wrong perspective, that's how the culture seems to view it, is that that's the moment where people started to put money back in screen musicals. Even though that's really not true, Evita was in 96, and it was pretty successful. It was, was pretty good, too. Was I didn't the, see uh, it, but um, I'm Alan Parker, I would expect. I haven't seen Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, but was that a musical? No, no okay, no. but it had very much kind of the similar flair. Here's the thing: yeah. even when Lerman's films aren't musicals, they're still kind of musicals. If that makes any sense, yeah, it does. When Moulin Rouge came out, uh, what a friend of mine described uh, Boz Lerman as: he's like Boz Lerman is just taking a drug. Just watching a Boz Lerman film is like taking a drug and sitting in a theater. <laughs> yeah. I, That's I have. Right. I have to concede, I'm not the biggest fan of his Romeo and Juliet, uh, but that's probably because that's one of my le- least favorite Shakespeare plays. I'm I'm much more of a uh, Hamlet, much ado about nothing guy. And it's got Claire Danes in it, and I don't like Claire Danes. Mm-hmm. I never have. But it does have DiCaprio, and that's that, that's a plus for me. Pre-Titanic DiCaprio. Yeah, post-growing pains, pre-Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, I mean, says this. I mean, that's that's kind of okay. Here's the first film where I'm just gonna have to pause and say I didn't see it. Yeah. I wanted to watch Moulin Rouge. I had every intention of doing so. Getting boxes from one house to another has eaten up so much of my time. 
I know. Have you but two seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't get to rewatch it for this time, but uh, I, I haven't rewatched it, but I've seen it many times. I I I own it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I I remember it very clearly. I want to make it clear that I would like to see it, being a big fan of the cast. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, I should have just seen it because John Leguizamo was in it. I, as, for as many bad movies as that guy makes, I still like him in uh, the stuff I see him in, and I'm so glad when he turns up in a film. Yeah. I liked him in Spawn. I mean, geez. Well, he was having fun in that when nobody else really seemed to be. Yeah. Uh, Moulin Rouge. So Moulin Rouge is interesting in the fact that it is it is simultaneously successful and unsuccessful by the criteria that we laid out. Yeah, yeah. It uses primarily Elton John songs. I don't know how to feel about that. Well, it's it's I mean, it's early Elton John stuff. It's it's really good music. <laughs> it, um, is good. And, it is good music. And there are there are moments in the film that are inspired. Um, I would say the sort of bizarre caper chase scene between, uh, I've forgotten the name of the actor, the one who was uh, the, the, the Count with the mustache and Jim Broadbent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, where they're doing the whole Like a Virgin. Yeah. They reimagine that song in a way where it's, it it gives that song a life and works with a plot. It's quite it's quite a lovely fit. Yeah. Um, the most people are very very fond of the the use of the song Roxanne because the plot fits. What I would say that is interesting about Moulin Rouge versus something like a Mamma Mia or God Help Me Across the Universe, which I absolutely despised. Same. Oh I God. stayed away from it because Julie Taymor. That's all that I need to know. Yeah. But they so in the case of like say across the universe, and I, I have I have I admit I have not seen Mamma Mia, but in most of these cases they go, We want to use this song, this song, this song, this song. How do we make a plot? Right. Everything what? wrong with that movie. Uh, I, I think for the most part in uh, Moulin Rouge, they went, we have a story to tell. Now, what songs would be interesting? What can we look at in a different way? So, you know, you can take, uh, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit and make it as these like hungry, horny men waiting for strippers. I haven't seen the film, but that alone might be enough to make me decide to put that on just because that does sound great. And I hate that song, so... Right, but you've got a mob of men going, here we are now, entertain us. That's you know, it, brilliant. And, it's, and it, it's, it's yeah, it's it's an interesting use, even though it, it doesn't maybe necessarily fit the criteria that I had just said for when a musical is completely successful. So I kind of think of Moulin Rouge as a, it's not even so much a musical to me as a, as a film experiment. Right. And a fairly successful one, I think. Yeah, sounds yeah. right. The big thing I remember about the movie at the time of its release was the music video that Christian Aguilera did. Not technically the film, but it was weird. Are That's... you talking about the song, the Lady Marmalade that she yes, did? Lady oh yeah, with with the uh, little Kim and Pink and I forgot yeah. all those people were involved. Yeah. <laughs> That stupid song still comes on the radio every so often, and I just... Well, I always turn it to, I always turn the station. I'm not a fan at all. I don't know if you 
ever watch any of the Nostalgia Critic, uh, he did one on this. Like, he did one with Nostalgia Chick, I think. Uh, okay. And uh, they do an interesting little critique on it where they, you know, the conclusion is that they love slash hate it. Yeah, they, they have problems with it, but at the same time, it's very fun and entertaining. And, well, they, they watch it time and time again. I yeah I I, I I like it I do I, I think I, I understand that whole uh, actually my girlfriend taught me a term I don't know where it came from of when you despise something but you can't turn away from it train wreck uh, no she refers to it as deetering <laughs> I like, like that so you know I deeter this and I, I I'd say that I like it more than I deeter it <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely can see how it is it is like a like a high grade tequila, it's a it's a taste you either have or you don't. Right, right. But yeah, JJ, any more thoughts on Moulin Rouge before we leave it? Uh, you know, yeah, no, actually, <laughs> I could I could I could prattle on, but there's nothing that's focused. I, yeah, let's move yeah, on. Yeah. yeah, and here's where we're probably going to get to where I expose myself as how my perspective is coming from the film goer because we're going to discuss Chicago. Chicago. Oh boy, have I had a number of arguments about this film. Really? Yep. Hmm. I have. Uh, starting when the film came out, yeah. For Symphonic Band, we actually uh, did selections from Chicago. So that's kind of, that's why I remember most about it. And that was really fun. The, uh, the music in this film is just fun. And it's also a really well done film. It, I believe... It comes from a play by Bob Fosse? Uh, yeah, Bob Fosse directed, um, trying to think of who the writers were. I, I, uh, Kander and Ebb. Kander and Ebb uh, did the uh, music. And uh... and I also remember that this was my first introduction to John C. Riley. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. That's a, that's, a, that's a really good one. It's not for me. Uh, I, I was a big Boogie Nights slash Magnolia fan. I was... I was thrilled when his career started to get a lot more traction after this movie, so... Yeah. Ironically, uh, in a role that he's kind of cast aside to the background, and, you know, he does he has a whole number on how he's invisible. So, ironically enough... Yeah. But it's the thing about it is it's such a great performance that it, it forced people to pay attention to him. It also forced him out of... Well, that's not really true. I was going to say it forced him into people seeing what a gentler performer he could be. But then I remember Magnolia and I remember that he did very much play a, a sympathetic character in that movie. And yeah, I, that's, that's a subject for another cast. I just love that movie so much. And having, having been familiar with Chicago and having heard many versions of the song, Mr. Cellophane, because that was, that's, I mean, even, I've Muppet the first season of the Muppet Show. Ben Vereen's on there, and he does a a, a version of of Mr. Cellophane. Uh, yeah, it's really quite nice, actually. But uh, uh, John C. Riley's version is heartbreaking. He just it's so it's so small 
and it's you know and usually it's sung that show that song's done by you know it's kind of a it's a known number i don't want to call it a showstopper but it's one that people look forward to you know kind of like you know you can't have somebody mousy sing all that jazz no uh, and boy did they sure not have that for this film <laughs> And uh, so are you guys, do you guys have, are you familiar with like Bob Fosse's place in theater history? Absolutely. Okay. I'm not, but my mother, my mother owned all that jazz and watched it worshipfully. So yeah, I've got a background on him. Okay. Well, basically, uh, uh, Albert, the, uh, the thing about Bob Fosse is he completely changed Broadway dance. He his whole thing was was like sex and isolations and and you know he, he a lot of his choreography a lot of it's from like the hips. He choreographed uh, cabaret. Okay, yeah. And so that whole look of things like this movie, you just it kind of they managed to. It's like they took Bob Fosse's id and and managed to film it in a way that. You know, you had to go pretty stylized, and in, in Chicago, I'd say, it was kind of a risk theater uh, filming-wise, because you had to film it in a way that you know you had these like stark, dark and light musical numbers. Because um, if you if you like the cell block tango, if you if you didn't establish a world where that could happen, then the whole damn thing was going to fall apart. Right. Pop it. So I said to him, I said, you pop that gum one more time. And he did. So I took the shotgun off the wall and I fired two warning shots into his head. Um, and so they they sort of managed to capture this like sort of sexy dark light black red uh, sort of fossy feeling in a film you know long after Fosse passed, which is I was surprised. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, you're. I can see that completely because that number. It is so very unsettling. There's such an interesting blend of sex and violence going on in that number and just sociopathic thoughts being brought to the fore. It's it's such a rich blend. And I mean, that was the moment where, where I was seeing theater. Where it was like, you know, if I'm not paying attention already, I'm sure as hell paying attention now. Yeah, it, it was a it, it's a heady moment in the film. I thought so then, I think so now. The film is, has such bite to it. You know, especially that last line. Yeah. It's holy shit. I mean, it's amazing to me how this work feels so prescient in the era of Amanda Knox and Nancy Grace. And then you realize that, well, the movie was made in 2002. Right. And was based on a 70s musical, which was based on a play, I think, going back to the 40s. Guys, culture doesn't change as much as we want to think it does. Right. Really doesn't. Yeah. Technology changes. 
and so the speed at which we get the cha- the everything changes, but the 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 society as a whole, you know, right. we are still the people that went to go see uh, people fed to lions. Exactly, and that's something that this movie um, gets across so well. I mean, I'm. <sighs> I, I'm kind of dancing around my thoughts on it. I said that I got into a lot of arguments with it. The reason was that basically everybody that I knew in high school, with a few exceptions, they really hated this film, and I really loved it. Yeah, I was I was very much on the outs of uh, people that I knew because a lot of them really despised this film. I have never heard of anybody hating this film. That's weird to me. Oh, yeah, I knew a lot of people who were very vociferous in their hatred for it. But I thought then, and I think now, that it's a rich, powerful piece of satire. One thing we talked about before, I think before we started recording, is that one of the dangers of adapting a, uh, a stage play into film is that the, the needs uh, and the rewards of film and theater are, are different. Film's much smaller. And so when you do something like Chicago, that is very uh, jazz hands. <laughs> yes, appropriate. Uh, yeah, it has uh, it has the danger of being uh, way too big, uh, and in, and you cast people who uh, well at least one person who has a, a huge uh, musical theater background. And I know Renee Zellweger did not. Uh, Which and did kind of come through in the film, frankly. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and but then adding the, the absolutely brilliant casting. If they did nothing else in that right movie, right, the brilliant casting of um, Queen Latifah. Oh yeah. As uh, Mama Morton, she's amazing. So there's a couple things you have to do when you're adapting a film like uh, a play like Chicago or something to to the film. You either have to adapt this sort of magical realism where Renee Zellweger can turn into a puppet like that, huh. or you pull everything way back, which Chicago wouldn't work, or you have something that risks being a, uh, well, it's, I'm trying to, to articulate it. It's this sort of ridiculously showy, like, you know, yeah, we're putting like, on a show, which doesn't work top, in film. Yeah. Like a vaudeville type thing. Yeah, I mean, and it just doesn't work cinematically. It doesn't. You don't go through the no. journey that you're supposed to go through. Right. And I think Chicago does it quite well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that was actually what people I knew objected to was the fact that they made so many changes to the structure and all that, and they were, and it was just like, no, no, you don't get it. Ugh. Well, going back to uh, Little Shop, which we touched on a little bit, um, the 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 play product, the the stage play of, of Little Shop has a horribly downer ending. Technically speaking, so does the original cut of the film. Yeah, yeah. and so I've if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, in the play, it ends with a song called "You know, Don't Feed the Plants" because Audrey kills everybody, and so the last song is sung by the. The, the ghosts of all the dead warning you that Audrey's going... And in the original theater, then, like, vines and stuff popped out of the walls, and, in, you know, the audience became kind of part of the part of the show, in a way, and the fact that, they, you know, they, this whole, like, Audrey puppets were all over the place. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Uh, but when they filmed it, 
they found that that was kind of a downer for the film to, to, to spend that much time with, with Rick Moranis. You don't necessarily want to see him die at the end. So they changed the, they changed it to, uh, sort of a, a more victorious feeling and, and it works for the film. I, I don't know that I would want to see the stage play change to that, but it, it works in the film. So you do kind of walk out going, yeah, little shop, little shop. <laughs> it's almost as if the medium matters. Yeah. Gee. But yeah, I mean, you, you are right. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you alluded to, uh, Catherine Zeta Jones background in theater. Boy, did that come through in this film? Because she she got an Oscar for this film, and I think she absolutely deserved it. Yeah, I agree. It's funny, even though he could not sing a note, I thought Richard Gere was just incredible in it. That was really him tap dancing. I'm aware. Yeah. All right, let's see if we can work this out. Someone who writes about mm, reneging on pledges and, and, and erroneous charges. Call me crazy. Doesn't that sound like a lawyer to you? What Richard Gere did is he sold. Exactly. I think his voice is fine. But yeah, he sold every single moment of that. He razzle-dazzled him. Yeah. He did. Yes. And and you're right. I mean, I'm just saying, okay, I don't know what I'm trying to say. My point is that he was awesome in it, and that's more the point (laughs) that I want to make. I love Richard Gere when he plays slime balls because he does it so well. It's like Tom Cruise playing crazy. Yeah. (laughs) And in a weird way, I almost feel like Zellweger not quite being as good as everybody else kind of actually worked in the sense that that's kind of her character. She's the vanilla one. Yeah. And it kind of fit. And she did a good job on the acting end, so I couldn't really gripe too much. Uh, And that was before her eyes completely closed over. I noticed. I noticed that. I noticed that. She still looked vaguely human. Uh, her mouth was still a little bit open. You know, I, was, I was going to say, what happened to her? Like, that's what I kept asking myself during the film. What, what happened to her? I hate to say it. I wonder, I, I kind of wondered for years if maybe the media attention when she, you know, gained like five pounds to do Bridget Jones's diary. I just yeah. wonder if maybe that sort of got to her because it seems like she hasn't really been the same since the, especially Which the is, second, the hmm. second one. Which is doubly ridiculous since she looked better with the weight on. She looked healthier with the weight on. And it wasn't even that much, as but noted. To, uh, to start with the, uh, the, the unfair treatment of, of media attention of Hollywood actors, of Hollywood women specifically, uh, that, that's, a whole, that's, that's probably not even another podcast. That's a whole different series. It is. Yeah. It is. And, well, honestly, it's probably alluding back to our last serious episode, so, you know. Yeah, we had, uh, you know Beck, right? Yeah. Poppins, yeah. Uh, we had her on for a feminist cast. Right. Yeah, yeah. so we, 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 we've been down that road, and we'll go back down that road again, I'm sure. Oh, but, yeah. But, I mean, I, Zellweger, I thought she was fine. I, I mean, I just, I don't know, as I said, to me, I this is one. This is a film that I've noticed uh, in recent years has become a scapegoat for bad Oscar decisions, bad uh, Best Picture winners, and I still have to disagree. I still think this is just a tremendous amount of fun, and mm-hmm. one of the very few. Okay, it's a musical, but it's one of the funniest Best Picture winners we've had in the last few years. So, yeah, 
Next, if you go down the list, I mean, because I don't, uh, I, I don't exactly have a comprehensive list of every musical that's come out. Right. Two thousand five was when we got hit with, you know, really Chicago was a tremendous box office hit, and that probably brings us next. We're going to come to. We have to do it. We have to come to Rent. Rent. Yeah, you saw it a while back. I think JJ and I just saw it. I watched it two days ago. (laughs) I have been putting it off for years because I had a feeling that it was going to be exactly what it was. Yeah. I probably find myself... Here's the thing. I'm going to find myself the odd man out in that I will concede that my opinion is marginally positive and that I do like it, but at the same time, I feel like any critique that I'm going to hear about this, I'm probably going to go, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. It's This is where guilty pleasures come in, and you just have to sometimes concede that your taste intellectually doesn't work the same way as uh, emotional taste. I, I adore one of my favorite like bad films in the world is a film by the name of uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. It was a made-for-TV movie. I'm very familiar uh, with Kiss Meets the Phantom. Yeah, I love that movie. I love that movie unabashedly. It's a terrible film. So, yeah, no, I, I do firmly, I, I firmly believe that if something brings you pleasure, you like it. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. You can, you know, you can agree with everything that's wrong with it, but if it brings you pleasure, it brings you pleasure. Right. However, Rant was a piece of shit. <laughs> I'm coming at it being not familiar at all with the play, except uh, except AIDS. That's the only thing I knew about it is AIDS. Same here. Yeah, I, I've never seen the play. Uh, I I pretty much the the I, I knew the the big song that they open it with the you know the five thousand yeah yeah five hundred twenty five thousand six hundred minutes I think which okay I still hate that song. <laughs> And I knew that Team America spoofed it so beautifully <laughs> with everyone has AIDS. Which, of course, That's... when my girlfriend and I were watching Rent, uh, every we were just, that was kind of the 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 go for when, when there were when there was so much just ridiculous plot being put into these tuneless songs, we would kind of get lost for a minute and we'd just be like, everyone has AIDS. (laughs) My father and my grandma and my dog. AIDS. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess AIDS doesn't, like, it does kind of play into the plot, but it doesn't as much as I thought it would. Right. I my take on I kind of liked slash didn't like it like like I told Austin I kind of liked it but a third of the time I didn't know what the hell it was going on about like a lot of the songs confused me. Well, okay, there's a couple of things that that got me right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get past the five hundred thousand song, mm-hmm. uh, the how do you measure a beer, uh, <laughs> and then. The, milliliters, by the way. <laughs> 500 milliliters. Um, or 24 in a suitcase. Um, but anyway, uh, so storytelling-wise, then you get into a number where everybody is throwing fire out the window. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
um, which looked cool. I mean, at the beginning of it, my girlfriend was like, this movie looks cool. Mm-hmm. And it did look cool. But the, like the first line of the first song is like, how do we pay the rent? Now, okay, so I, coming from uh, 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 an improv background, if you're doing an improv show and you tell somebody, okay, give me a word and we'll base the scene off the word, and somebody gives you the word rent, the mark of a bad improver, and this is someone who makes shit off off the top of their head, but the mark of a bad improver is to then go, how are we going to pay the rent? Y- you bury the lead a little. You know, you play with the audience a little bit. The audience knows you're going to get to rent. So how about you talk about what a big apartment you have? (laughs) My, what a big apartment you bohemians have. (laughs) You're right about that. Uh, And and we clocked it. The first song in it that felt like a real song that didn't just sound like sort of bad rapping. Yeah was the tango song which is 39 minutes into it right yeah did she moon over other boys more than moon i'm getting nauseous and that's uh, the first one that really kind of felt like a, a a song yeah it actually kind of felt like an important plot point my ex slash the person you're currently dating kind of has a dance and uh you're playing right into her hands. Kind of right. Yeah. Uh, which kind of was foreshadowing for the next time there was a good song, which was the breakup between those two characters. Yeah. The two lesbians. There was not a good there was not a good number until then. And that was like an hour uh, it was like an hour and ten into it when that number happened. And then that was the first one that, you know, uh, again my girlfriend went, This is a musical song. This was important to the plot. This worked. But up till then, you know, we've had, you know, I started laughing when it got to the the performance art piece because I was like, of course this movie has performance art in the middle of it. <laughs> They're down on their luck. They come knocking on my doghouse door and I said, not in my backyard utensils. Go back to China. We went off on that one on uh, Facebook last night. By the, which, by the way, uh, for you listeners, that performance art piece is Adida Mansell, who, of course, you'll recognize as Elsa. The wickedly person. talented. The wickedly talented. Adele Dizzy. <laughs> and I just felt bad for her. I just felt bad for her delivering those lines. Yeah. I mean, look, as I said, I like the film to a degree, but even that sequence, I was just sitting there going, if this, if this isn't to some degree being done as a mockery of this stuff, and I don't think it is, then there is something wrong going on here because this is unbearable. And that's that's the point where I, where I said, you know what? I, I would have taken that guy's offer. I would have shut down my ex-girlfriend's protest to get a year's worth, a year's worth of rent. Free. It wasn't even a year's worth. He said you would you'd have in writing you would never have to pay to live there. 
Oh shit! Oh wow! Even better. By the way, that plot was that plot line was pretty much abandoned at the beginning. It I mean, was. they never even thought about it. No, he at one point evicts them, but then brings them back because of his connection to I don't know <laughs> to Rosario Dawson's character. His connection to AIDS. His connection to AIDS, exactly. <sighs> and. Did she have AIDS in the film? I wasn't sure. Uh, who, who the hell the fucking... Okay. <laughs> uh, 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 and, and just not even to go mentally to the end, but... Mm-hmm. Okay, so at that point, when Rosario Dawson shows up at the end... Okay, well, first of all, when uh, when Angel died, right. I will say that is one thing. Uh, I HIV deaths in films almost always tug at my heartstrings. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a stupid waste of a human life. And so that that was a very sad part of the film. Yeah, I felt manipulated because I felt like the film didn't earn the feelings that the images were giving me. Mm -hmm. I felt that they were I those images were that were manipulating feelings from from other things, but it did work. And so then, let's cut to the Rosario Dawson thing where she's she's dying at the end, and. So then I thought to myself, okay, so they're kind of going with a La Boheme kind of thing. They're these tragic lovers who are, are dying. Oh, and she did have AIDS. That's right, because that's how they that's how they decided to to actually uh, to, to love one another is because they had to both stop and take AZT together. Okay, I see. Yeah, that's why it went from uh, I have something to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you. To let's bump uglies. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so then she she dies at the end because she's you know this this junkie. They carry her back. She can barely speak. And you're like, okay, so this is going to be the tragic death at the end of La Boheme. So then she dies. Ten seconds later, <laughs> healthier than she had been in the entire goddamn film. So they can watch a montage. Of shit that we were already bored watching. Yeah. And while we're at it, one other big complaint I have is, okay, so in order for a story to be told, a story is to a section of a life where a change in, a, in someone's life happens. It can be a small change. It can be a big change. But the reason you tell a tale is because something is different at the end than at the beginning. Right. So... Mark, the, 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 the Mark from Rent, the guy that became famous as being Mark from Rent, the guy with the scarf. Yeah, the filmmaker. So, yeah. Yeah. That's all you really know about him. But so, okay, so he lost his girlfriend before the movie. So that's not part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Then he has friends who do crazy shit with AIDS around him. He moves through it, doesn't get AIDS, and at the end he doesn't have AIDS. The only thing that happens to him during this movie is he gets a job. Poor and, bastard. And he yeah. sells out. I I have to admit, whenever I see selling out handled in a work and it's treated as such a bad thing, I almost always, my response is to scream, oh, come on. Yeah. As a performer, my whole life has been waiting for a chance to sell out. Yeah, I've never had the opportunity, but I would. I as a, I'm a vegetarian. I would sell veal if given the chance. 
all popular artists sell out. That's why they're popular. It, it's it's ironic if you sell out. Usually, if you sell out and you have enough success, usually you wind up getting the chance to get the creative freedom to do what you want. Just look at the Beatles. Exactly. Our example here, people. And, you know, heaven forbid you get a job where you get $3,000 a story, which means mm -hmm. technically he had the opportunity, because it was news, to, to make $3,000 a day. Right. Fuck you selling out. <laughs> you work I, for a little while, you save the money, and you do the dream project. I mean, I have projects that I'm working on right now that are going to happen in a couple of years because I'm working on getting money. If I could have a $3,000 a day job, this shit would happen a lot faster. Just to be clear, $3,000 is um, two months' pay for me. So, seriously. And this is right also here. 1980s $3,000. Yeah. So that's like, in what, 3500 nowadays? <laughs> 525,600 cups of coffee. Also, really quick, why was uh, Sarah Silverman in that scene? Or, I mean, why was she I in that know. movie? Because she, she has wanted a... to be around AIDS? <laughs> With her sense of humor, probably. Probably. <laughs> Still, that was one of those weird, what are you doing here, castings? I mean, here's the thing. I really, I really do agree with everything that's being said, and yet... For some reason, at the end, I, I can't help but feel like maybe my react, my reason for liking the film when I saw it was really low expectations, and maybe it just flung itself over the, that bar. It's probably true. Well, the thing I found kind of, and we'll talk about the other one in a minute, but the reason that the thing that I found interesting is because the, you gave me a list of movies and there was two on them that I hadn't seen. So I, I went out of my way. No, out of my way. <laughs> but I watched two two films that I had not seen yet. And one of them was one of the worst movie musicals I've seen in a long time. And one that affected me deeply. So I, I feel like I feel like uh you know, I can't complain too much. I, I feel like I've I needed to watch uh to watch Rent just to sort of be able to have a, a an honest opinion on it. Mm -hmm. But then I ended up watching one excuse me, last night which I adored. I mean how I feel about Rent is I know everything that's wrong with it, but I did enjoy myself while watching it. And I, I can't help but wonder if maybe it was also because there is a very snarky bastard in me that did kind of enjoy criticizing these people. I mean, I'm I'm very cynical. Even in college when I watched it, I was like, you know, this the, the these are the kinds of people that I cannot stand. I'm I'm the kind of person for whom I was born old. And, uh, you know, I work, I don't work a nine to five job, but if I did, I'd probably be perfectly happy with it. So I don't know. And just one last thing to kind of lob at the film as well. I just want to point out that I like Rosaria Dawson a lot, Me too. but if she looks 16, then I'm the mayor of France. <laughs> yeah. I think she said she was. Uh, 19, which is a little closer, but at the same time... No, well, one of the reasons, not, no. As my girlfriend pointed out, one of the reasons that you tend to like to look at Rosario Dawson is that she doesn't look 19. Right. <laughs> yeah. At 19, you ain't done yet. 
I think the year the year after uh, she played in Clerks two, which I think she was yes, like her tw- in her twenties. Yeah, you know, and she, and I don't you know I don't have a problem with not necessarily playing uh playing your age. I mean, for one thing, it's like Shakespearean plays, you can have older people playing younger people because it's just you know it kind of for one thing that if you actually had a like fourteen and fifteen year old Romeo and Juliet. It'd be problematic. It'd be kinda gross. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean but it just when if if it the only it only gets mentioned once that she looks like a sixteen a year old. She might be nineteen, but she looks sixteen. Right. It just sort of it felt really odd to me. And then they take her to this she works at this what's supposed to be a shady strip club. Mm-hmm. That was not a shady strip club. That was the night, one of the nicest. That was, that was the kind of club where they uh, did full performances of like Chicago, yeah. where the Pussycat Dolls performed. Why not just say it's a burlesque show and uh, there your plot hole is uh, is patched? Yeah, it could have easily been fixed by just dropping the night the sixteen year old and saying that she worked in kind of a sketchy. Uh, sexy nightclub or whatever, or or something, and yeah, it would have been an easy fix. But yeah, you know, God, God forbid, you change your movie for the fucking medium. <laughs> Man, that feels like an amazing segue. Now there were three musicals released in two thousand five. Um, mm-hmm. The other was Phantom of the Opera. Joel Schumacher directing, uh, Gerard Butler singing. <laughs> I didn't see it. There was no way in hell I was going to watch that. So, yeah. pulling my card on this one. I forgot um, it existed. I've never seen Mo- it. Uh, most I, did. I, it's, it's, again, it's one of those that I, I understand how it works as a stage production. I don't really see how... I just never had the desire to watch it as a film because it's not... The, the, the films of Fan of the Opera are fine, <laughs> but the musical is a different beast. I did. And, I did enjoy Phantom of the Paradise. I will say that the uh, uh Robert, the she's Paul Williams movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Brian De Palma. Hell yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, De Palma's an actual film director who knew what right. he was doing. It was and, it was cheesy seventies updated fun. And I've already established that I like Phantom of the Park. So yeah, yeah. But, here. Let's 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 address probably the one that I think the most bio can at least I wouldn't say I don't know about y'all, but this is the one that really annoyed me, and that's the producers. Um so so personal background for me, I um I love Mel Brooks, of course. That was established in the in twenty one B, the April Fools, like the one where we came out and said, Ha 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 ha, April Fools. He, the last film he made was Men Tights, which was Nope. Like, nope. No? Nope. We gotta yeah. jump in. Dracula Dead and Loving. Dead and Loving It. Oh right. That was ninety seven, wasn't it? Ninety five. Ninety five. Which had one huge belly laugh, even though it was a disappointing film, but the moment that Anne Baycroft does this with her <laughs> just killed me. <laughs> I completely forgot about that, but most people do. Yeah, uh, poor Leslie Nielsen. But anyway, he had a career. Don't feel bad for him. That's true. That's true. That's true. So yeah, then he 
started pro- he started producing musicals of like I th- there's the producers I think he did one of Young Frankenstein I'm not sure that one I actually did see on Broadway yeah was it any good yes no yes no okay that seems to be the general reaction good enough anyway I ha- I actually had the soundtrack for the producers and I quite liked it. Um, so I was really excited when they made the movie of it. It's like, finally, I get to see, I get to see this. Get to the theater, I think at least three or four people walked out. But basically, it was, it was Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick trying to do the original movie. And for another, and I thought at the time it was just because I'd heard the songs so much that seeing them actually acted out was underwhelming. No, it's because... It's because the whole thing was just underwhelming. And, uh... uh somebody take the reins from me. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll do it. Um, right. here's, here, here's the thing. I'm sure that the producers on stage worked. Sure. I, I can even tell that it probably worked. Film is a very different medium from stage. Stage and screen are different things. The problem with the producers is, and my background is, yeah, same thing. Love Mel Brooks. Um, love the original film. I have to concede it is, frankly, kind of dated. And nowhere is that clearer just how dated it is than when you see how much of that original script is just carted up and brought over to this film. This movie felt like I was watching the original, but every five minutes they would stop for a song. And I was not a fan of the songs at all. Uh, One number in particular I intend to eviscerate as passionately as I can eviscerate something. It just, it, it, the movie simply doesn't work. It feels like a stage play where they've simply put the camera in the middle of the room. They've shot it. The stages look like stages. Not even sets. They look like stages. Mm-hmm. This movie, it has some virtues. It has some things about it that I do like. But by and large, if I wanted to watch the original again, I would watch the original. It's better paced. It's better moving. And I'm just it's not. A film. And it's a film. It's to be a film. Exactly. And yeah, I just I watched it again last night. I will admit I did not I did not get through all of it. I got through a little more than half of it before I went. There's another hour of this. I'd rather sleep. I'd rather do anything else. I'd rather watch the original. That was short. That was shortly after the Keep It Gay number, by the way. This is my set designer, Brian. Hello. Keep it mad. Keep it glad. Keep it gay. Here's my costume designer, Kevin. Hello. Keep it happy. Keep it snappy. Keep it gay. Which is just, I, I seriously want to point out, I try to be as lax as I can. I try to be relaxed and not get my political correctness hackles up. But that number is just, oh, it's, it's unsettling how little it works. It's it's unpleasant, frankly. Well, I saw that last night, actually. Yeah. And I'd forgotten that there was a song. Keep keep it gay. I remember it now. But yeah. my first thought was, uh, I two years ago I did a uh, 
the musical. It's uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, and there's a number in that called Keep It Gay. But it it means, you know, it's about learning to dance and right. how when you dance, you should keep it gay, keep everything happy. <laughs> and, I, know the, uh, I know the musical. I know the musical. I know the one. Yes. And so uh, and so here, you know, just for a second, I was like, wait, what do you have wrong with Rogers and Hammerstein? <laughs> oh, that's right. And again, I think part of it, again, when you are in a theater full of an audience that has been warmed up to experience theater together. That is part of part of the the the, the cast of of a of a play that nobody ever thinks about is the audience because the audience yeah. are all experiencing something together and you can have if an audience is warm you can take them anywhere and they're willing to go with you. You know, and and so if if you are with a group of people that are ready to see a number like keep it gay, you are experiencing it with 300 people and you're having a time, a good time. And it just, you just go, well, that was kind of you know funny. Maybe a little, you know, you might still, it might still tickle the back of your head going, that seemed a little politically incorrect, but it's Mel Brooks, whatever. Yeah. When you experience a number like that in the theater, you're by yourself. Even if you're in a movie theater, you're by yourself. Yeah. So it's this dirty little, well, it's like watching porno. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's you're, you're all by yourself. You feel kind of ashamed for, for what you've, what you've experienced and you don't have anybody you can, you can, uh, I uh, don't want to say unload on. You don't have anybody you can experience it with because, you know, you, 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 it's your dirty little secret. And that was one of the things that you feel right up front in uh, the movie. After the first musical number, it's like, okay, okay, that sets it up. And then there's like 10 minutes, like 10 or 12 minutes, where it's just nothing but that scene where Bialystok and Bloom get introduced to each other. And there's no music, there's no, there's no nothing. It's just, for one part, it's you know, pulling straight from the other movie. And it's... Uh, Matthew Broderick trying to do Gene Wilder, and that doesn't work. That's a whole other thing. But nobody does Gene Wilder. No, no, nope. no, exactly. Um, but that's one of the things that you feel. It's like I'm not watching this with an audience. There's nothing like this. Feels like this feels almost like it should have a laugh track to it, and it's not there. There's nothing but silence. Well, ironically, uh, ironically, the original producers kind of gives you a good metaphor for it, because by the time we get to the play and we see the, the, the number springtime for Hitler, we're actually watching it at the same time the audience is true, the audience of the fictional play. Right. And, but we have been prepared for it. So for us, it's hilarious. Those people have just walked into it and they see springtime for Hitler. And so the number itself, they, they, they can't handle it. It's not until the, the play establishes a mood that people come back. Right. But, but that, the shock of just hearing them sing, you know, springtime for Hitler is too much for them. Yeah, exactly. That is, that is a good parallel. But yeah, it just felt weird. It felt off. I think the moment I turned it off was after Uma Thurman's number this time around. I, like I said, I have seen the movie all the way through. I saw it in a theater, so... Uh, so did I. 
Did either of you guys see, this is a non-musical, but did you ever see the movie, I think it was called Closer, with, uh, it was uh, with, it was a big play. And then Jude Law. Uh, yeah, Jude Law and Natalie Yeah, Portman. absolutely I did. Yeah, yeah. So I, I hated that film because they just, took, they just shot the, the play script. And so you have these scenes of people coming in and just giving us pages and pages and pages of exposition. And there's all this wasted screen time of them telling us how they feel and what they're thinking. Now, in a on in stage, you can't show us those scenes, but in a film, you can have things like montage or flashback. <laughs> I don't know. It's just such. I mean, I'll say this: Susan Stroman is not a film director. That was made very clear watching this film. She had no command of the film language whatsoever. She directed the play. I remember watching a thing on the, this is before the movie came out, like way before, on the actual play. It was just like a little behind the scenes thing. And it was pretty cool. I remember uh, Mel Brooks actually saying, you know, if we do a film version of this, I want you to direct it. And she's like, really? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, I don't know. It was just an, it was just an awkward experience to watch. And I wish it had been better. Yeah. I, I just think it's I would still go see the play if given the chance. I think that it is a theatrical experience right. that that the idea of turning it into a film was based on the idea of, hey, Chicago made a lot of money. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think if I had the chance, I probably would see it because I would enjoy it in that setting. As I said, screen is screen, stage is stage. Right, like uh, there was talk for a little while about making a uh, a movie of the musical version of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I really hope they don't because that has songs that are very, well, to go back to what I said earlier, very jazz hands. Right. It's, you know, and it's, and it's the idea of, I think you would be incredibly challenged to figure out a, a way where you could tell a story like dirty rotten scoundrels, have it come, have it hold its own to the original, the original two versions of the film and, uh, and still tell a story that, you know, you could buy into. It just sounds like a train wreck waiting to happen. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I mean, I generally speaking, I feel like, you also get to the point where once you're adapting and, you know, several times over, I mean, it's kind of like the it's kind of like the homeopathic remedies. The more times that you dilute it. Right. I mean, it's just several dilutions and that's what happens. I don't know. But by, by the same measure, I kind of want to see a, um, a film version of the Book of Mormon. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. What I think what I would actually prefer, and they used to do this more, they don't do this anymore, mm -hmm. uh, is HBO way back in the day used to show filmed versions of stage plays. Right. Uh, and I'm going to jump the gun and say, uh, I don't. I think this one was done for PBS, actually for Masterpiece Theater or something, but they did one of Sweeney Todd, which is what introduced me to Sweeney Todd. And... The weird thing is, if you film a stage play, but if you film it well, you can have the same experience, and part of it is because the audience is there. If you film it poorly, it just is a bad translation. Like, if you go to, 
uh, the local community theater and just like take out your your cell phone and you know stick it on the thing you know do a, a cam vid or whatever right. it's gonna suck because you you're not getting the experience because it does there's something about that that puts a a wall there that keeps you from experiencing it but if you film it properly you can with some editing uh have that kind of experience and right. so if they did something like that for book of mormon i'm down yeah yeah absolutely i feel like this is where the fathom events screenings would come in real handy that yeah. you know that's exactly what's happened to that kind of thing yeah that you're and right I, and i think that's a great way to do it um and because i've gone to several of those uh i've gone to them for the uh, rift tracks live events yeah. which are awesome I think the point is, in some form, I want to see the Book of Mormon. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I should be touring soon. Oh, I um, hopefully yes. I will say that is one of the great examples of the of a case where you can take the soundtrack, and if you just have a basic plot synopsis at hand mm -hmm. to fill in the blanks, you can follow that thing perfectly because that's what I did. And mm -hmm. then when I went out and picked up the book of it, I was surprised by just how much it was. Like, yeah, I really understood this. And it was great. It was great. I'm a big Book of Mormon fan myself. Um, yeah. But you know, you mentioned Sweeney Todd. Man, we're com we're coming up with some great segues here. If we are discussing Sweeney Todd, I will say up front, Sweeney Todd is one of my favorite musicals of all time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I was a I was a metal kid, <laughs> and so in high school, when somebody showed me this over-the-top musical that involved death and blood and cannibalism. Yeah, I am all over this. So I have two versions of Sweeney Todd that I own. I have the Tim Burton version, and I have the, the stage play version that I was talking about earlier. And I watch them in each at least once a year. The original had Angel Lensbury in the... Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, the the stage play version has George Hearn and Angela Lansbury. George Hearn was the second Sweeney Todd. He took over from Len Carew. I'm kind of a dork when it comes to Sweeney Todd. It is, it is a role that when I eventually go gray uh, is my, my dream role to play. So with that being said, the film version has its pluses and minuses. It's hit and miss for me. Uh, honestly, my exposure to it is the scene in Jersey Girl, right? And that's about it. So I think, I mean, I kind of take the attitude that yeah, I have some pluses and minuses with the film version myself. But at the end of the day, I really quite enjoyed it. I, I highly recommend if you can find it or pirate it or however you can get a hold of it, watch the stage play at least just once. I'm sure I could get a hold of it from the library. We've got an amazing video selection at our library here, so I'm sure I could keep my hands on it that way. I have, I have the film soundtrack. I want to get the uh, the original soundtrack just to see. So I know it is different. Yeah. Well, well and for one thing, Angela Lansbury is just way better than Helen Bonham Carter. I'm yeah. sorry. That's one thing that I will say about the movie version is they definitely did not cast singers. They, no, they cast actors. They cast actors. And, and that's not a bad decision in a lot of ways. No, it's not. But the thing that Tim Burton did, now we're talking about adapting from film to, to stage. So Tim Burton, one of the things that he did, and I'm not sure it was the right decision, is his magical reality is the fact that 
No one in the movie technically is singing at one another, if you notice. I mean, there's a yes. couple of times where they're kind of singing together, but for the most part, with the exception of maybe the the Pirelli number, when like Sweeney Todd is doing his whole, you know, they all deserve to die. Everyone's uh, he's, seeing a vacuum, you're saying. Yeah, because he decided that he didn't want to have big crowd numbers. Now, one of the things that happens in the play is that basically as you die, you kind of become part of the, you kind of become part of a chorus. And so there's a growing chorus of dead people which sort of sing some of the exposition at times and some of, and so that's kind of cool. But you also have like the the number where uh, they're serving the meat pies to everyone, you, you know, where they're, you know, how, and they're just kind of running around going, yeah. And, but the, the whole time the crowd is singing this, like, more hot pies. And so it's this really sort of chaotic number. But I understand that he made that decision. I'm not 100% sure it was necessary. And it kind of, there's a couple of points where it just kind of kills a number that would have energy, like that one, for one, for instance. But there are certain casting in Sweeney Todd that I think uh, are, are nice casting, like the kid who plays. I can't. All of a sudden, I'm blanking on the name of the kid who plays the 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 kid who is the sailor. Um. So in the stage play, it was cast by this guy who looks a lot like Pat Boone, and so when he does, and he has this amazingly strong voice, so when he sings the whole like "I feel you, Joanna," it's too strong. And to some extent, so when they play, when they cast somebody with a slightly weaker voice who's a little bit meeker, you're like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and the chick who plays Joanna in the stage play has this soprano that is way up there. And so her song, uh, the the Green Linnet Bird song, I, I tend to skip because I can't understand what she's saying because her voice is so high and her vibrato is so strong. But again, in the movie, they turn it into the sort of, you know, she still has a high voice, but it's a little bit more wistful. So, I mean, there are definitely moments in the film that I that I like, which is part of why I still watch it a lot. But, you know, but it's kind of also like if somebody, you know, if somebody does a fairly true version of one of your favorite stories, you're kind of predisposed to like it anyway, because people still die. They still get fed to other people. There's still blood. There's still metal. Yeah. <laughs> And Tim Burton, you know, he uh, he's steeped in this stuff, so, I mean, yeah, he can do it justice. I mean, I should stress, I, I think the acting as a whole is pretty good. I'm just acknowledging the fact that the singing, yeah. Right, right, right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I thought, honestly, I'm, you know, for this group of act, for this group of talents, at least for them working together as a whole, yeah, this was it, because... Uh, Everything I didn't even bother with Dark Shadows, so yeah, yeah, really. it's a film that I quite enjoy. Um, uh, yeah, there are some ob there are some obvious flaws, but it is a film that I enjoyed. If I was to go by the chronology, next up is Mamma Mia. Yeah, which we were going to watch, but we didn't. <laughs> Cause fuck that shit. Cause we watched Rent. Why would we do that to ourselves twice? Yeah, that's right. My, my stance is. I know the music. I've heard Pierce Bro I've heard Pierce Brosnan's number from it. <laughs> I don't 
ever want to hear that sound again? Where are those happy days? They seem so hard to find. I tried to reach for you, but you have closed your mind. Well, and yeah. I kind of have a problem with any of those. Like we were talking about it earlier with like across the universe. I just any time that you just take someone's body of work and try to squish a story out of it, unless you do something like. Um, so I saw a preview for a movie that's about to come out, uh, Jersey Boys by Clint Eastwood, which I'm. I haven't seen the trailer for yet, but I am really kind of eager for that because I like that music. Right. But then we find out that they're using the music, you know, because I heard it was, you know, a musical based on the the music from uh, Frankie Valli. And I was like, that needed to happen Uh, because, like, I need to see a story about, you know, a love story about somebody named like Dawn or something. Uh, But that's not the case. They're using the music to tell the story of Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. Okay. Cool. <laughs> That's actually appropriate. <laughs> that makes sense. Why didn't we do that with uh you know, I would have I would have gone to see this the the story of Abba. Why not? I'm sure there's a great story there. There is a there is actually a really fascinating story there. I just sure don't need to see it. I just I don't need to see ugh no. Chronologically, if we're going down the line, I I skipped over one that we should have noted. Mm-hmm. Um, High School Musical, since I know that, I don't know if anybody else on this call has seen that, but I have seen it. I have not. I did musicals in high school. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sure they were probably better. Um, You know, okay, I watched the riff tracks to be technical, but, you know, I still technically saw it, and... Yeah, it's it's not very good. Um, it's you know again, it's so not for me. But even if it was for me, I there are so many like gaping plot holes in it. Like, wait a minute, why are they using a teenage girl for uh, writing the play? You know, and all these things. I mean, it's a TV movie that was slammed together. It was designed to be forgotten, and it accidentally wasn't. So I will say that Zac Efron uh, was dubbed for the movie. There are times where you can hear that, actually. That's and, kind of shameful. Yeah, there. Um, the the there's really nothing to say about it beyond it's not very good. I don't know how it became a four film franchise, but that's it. That's that's my review of High School Musical. It exists. Let's see. As I said, you had um, Mamma Mia, which, as I said, I didn't watch, and I'm fine with that. I don't even like the music of Abba to start with, so that's it. And uh, yeah, I guess chronologically, really, the next one that we uh, come to is Les Miserables. All I'm going to say is that Les Miserables is one of my favorite novels of all time, and it's only the fact that I was moving twice during the opportunities that I had to see it kept me from seeing it. I'm going to step back and let y'all talk. What a film. It's kind of weird, because... There's no point in the two and a half hours where uh, uh, there isn't music. Like, there's maybe one or two, like, little bits of dialogue. But otherwise, the whole thing is just music. Mm-hmm. It works really well. And the way they did it, it feels like... It almost feels like a perfect stage-to-film translation, because they made it pretty big. They made it big, but one thing that they did that was really nice is if you pay attention that anytime somebody has something important to say they slow the film down so 
when uh, Fontaine, you know, she's had her hair shaved off, she sold a couple of her teeth, and she sings this just absolutely heartbreaking song. The camera just holds on a on a, like a mid-range close-up. You can just see her basically from the torso up, mm-hmm. and they just give her a chance to just sell it. Mm-hmm. She she does she's not doing anything large. She's just she's she's cry. Well, they also recorded famously. Right. They recorded the music on this live, right? Live um, so they're 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 actual performances, and so there are times where she's a little off rhythm because she's crying. And it just, it was really a lot uh, more strongly effective. Because I was, I was actually a little afraid to see this one. I'd, I'd been avoiding it. I had friends that liked it and some friends who didn't. Uh, most of the people I know, their criticisms came down pretty harshly on Russell Crowe. I don't, I don't get that. I think he did fine. I think he did absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, you know, there may have been a high note or two that maybe he didn't hold as long. Big fucking deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. You know, he didn't hold the, uh, you know, his, the note when he falls to his death. He didn't hold it for the entire fall like the guy in the Broadway show. Oh, wow. That ruined it for me. Oh, no. No. Especially God. since they made it so his death is just so. <laughs> Yeah, that makes me as someone who, as I said, the book is one of my all-time favorite pieces of writing in any medium. So to hear that they uh, handled that moment well really makes me happy. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I have not seen the stage play. Uh, my girlfriend has. She loved the stage play, which is another reason why we were a little hesitant to see it because we didn't want to see we didn't want to see a rent version or a producer's version of a musical that we really liked. But there's even like the uh, the empty chairs, empty tables number, which is the one that after the student revolution, when there's it's this it's a song of survivor guilt where he's basically saying, you know, my friends, um, I, I can't believe I'm the only one left alive. How the fuck did this happen? Uh, it's, you know, on on the stage, because, again, you're you're you have this the space he is on this in this set of. Uh, the same set where they sang their their earlier song, he goes back to the set and he's the only person there. Mm-hmm. Well, in a film, you just blow up the whole fucking thing. So he's in this wreckage. <laughs> and again, you hold on a tight shot of him where he's you know almost too upset to sing. It's really effective. Mm-hmm. Or Pokemon. He uses emotion. It's super effective. <laughs> So I was I was really shocked at how well this film manipulated my emotions. Yeah, same same measure. Yeah, you know you know it is manipulating you, but uh, you let it. Sometimes you just want to let something wash right. over you. Right. Exactly. You want to watch uh, Hugh Jackman do the best, be the best it is what he does, and what he does is sing songs. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, uh, I had to get at least one Wolverine joke in there. That's I'm fine. Now. That's fine. Had I seen the film, I would have 
had one at the ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Hugh Jackman is, of course, uh, for those who don't know, a song and dance man by trade. And a powerful fucking voice that man's got. Have oh, you? Uh, shit, yeah. Have y'all heard uh, any of... He did the Australian run of Beauty and the Beast, and he did Gaston. Gaston. Yeah. When I was a lad, I ate four dozen eggs every morning to help me get large. But now that I've grown, I eat five dozen eggs, so I'm roughly the size of a board. He knocks it out of the park. Uh, Did he do, do Disney's version? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he did the, uh, when it uh, toured in Australia, he did it, and he did Gaston, and he just, I mean, that was, he knocked it out of the park on that one. Okay, because I've seen, I've heard his Oklahoma, uh, and I've heard some numbers that he did from uh, The Man from Oz. Nothing to this extent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the movie is very long. Uh, You don't mind, really. Uh, I don't know how long the uh, the stage play is, the musical. It's uh, actually, they cut a couple of numbers, so it's probably a little bit longer. I figured it would be, because the movie is two and a half hours long, which seems to be Hollywood's equivalent of a long movie these days. Well, okay, that's not true, because Wolf of Wall Street was three hours. But Again, a movie that didn't get going until like the hour and a half mark. Right, right. But anyway... I started Les Mis last night after midnight because my girlfriend, that's about the time she got home. We sat down to watch it. And uh, the intent was to watch half of it and then have enough enough fodder to be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So at around 3 a.m. when I actually went to bed, I'm like, oh, I guess I'll watch the whole thing. Yes. That's kind of worked for me, too. <laughs> you just don't, you just don't want to stop watching. No. And it takes place over a really long time, too. Mm-hmm. And who would have thought that a movie named basically The Miserable... The Miserable ones, yeah. That it was so sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although we were kind of joking that, you know, the, the old saying, as you can tell, uh, if if it's a Shakespearean comedy or tragedy, you're watching, uh, even if it's a bad production, because at a tragedy, everybody's dead, and a comedy ends with a wedding. So, at, towards the end of this, we were like, oh, there's a wedding. This is a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he died. It's a tragedy. Oh. I don't know what to think. <laughs> well, I will point out that I thought that uh, Hugh Jackman's makeup was amazing throughout the film. Mm-hmm. It was a very... To, to do this, the changes throughout, they never went like heavy makeup. But there would be a little bit more gray in his hair. He'd look a little bit more ragged. Yeah. Um, it was subtle. It worked. You know, he looked like hell at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And again, with just costuming, they 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 put him in the in his rags to where you could kind of see uh, his collarbone. So it made it look like he was skin and bones. But you know from it being Hugh Jackman, you're like, no, that's just the dent between your pecs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they put him in these like loose peasant shirts. I mean, Hugh Jackman's a large man, but he's, he's, uh, he's lithe. You know, he's a very tight musculature, whereas Javon, uh, excuse me, Jean Valjean is supposed to be this like just hulking ox of a man. And you put him in these, these like shoulderless shirts, which sort of mask where 
where his body lines are, and you're just like, good God, that, this, he's a tank in this. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear y'all saying these things about that, because as I said, um, my, my fidelity is to the book. I, I, I love the book so much, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that the film is good. Um, uh, my wife is a huge, huge Ackman fan, so once we get done with this move, that'll probably be one of the first ones we look at putting on. Well, and and if you're talking about the loyalty of the book, you you know you you have you of course have to know that being adapted from the film, they do take they take kind of a storyline from it, and you have to leave out most of the 900 pages. Oh please! I, yeah. Oh please! When I say I'm a fan of the book, I read an abridgment. Let me be clear. Okay, because I mean, this is it is basically the story of Javert and Jean Valjean and the people that surround them. Well, that's the story that I care about. So okay, it's not you know it's not like well again going back to to shit on rent for a second again. Uh, it's not the fact that you know. Again, you were being introduced to new characters past the hour mark of that film. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be a, about a, a a group of friends, and you were just meeting them slower and slower and slower. I mean, sure, this the film does have what feels like an act break. Uh, I even, you know, kind of knowing the language of musicals, I turn when the, the 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 number that started the second act started. I turned to my girlfriend. and I was like, "We just had intermission, didn't we?" <laughs> I um I'm I'm actually I'm I'm doing some writing right now and one of the things that I'm making sure of is get virtually every single major character that's going to factor into the story at least referenced by page 10 is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. It's good. It's it's like lay down the law and every major theme by page 10 get everything every piece that i'm going to be playing with out of the toy box and ready to play with and that's what i've always heard is just got to hook them it's the uh, it's the rule of the first reel uh, i think uh, ebert noted it uh, if nothing has happened by the first uh, by the end of the first reel nothing's going to happen yeah right so much truth in that and you don't have a character introduced first in a silent number where a number that's about you and you just sort of feature in it silently and then in performance art. Yeah. You know, the more that I think about it, the more that I feel like that was just such a tremendous waste of Menzel. Yeah. Well, I mean, she at least got to moon her husband. So that's fun. Yeah, that that is true. That is true. That is true. Um, And, and of course, honestly, the more that we discuss that, the more that I think that frozen was brilliant. Oh, frozen Uh, was brilliant. Mm hmm. It, it, it really, I, I I'm not surprised that that thing has uh, caught on with audiences. And the thing I noticed is um, they did a single version of "Let It Go" by uh, Demi Lovato. Oh, it's horrible. Which was over the end credits, and which was agony. That's not the version that's become the radio hit. The version that's become the radio hit is the song from the movie, and I think that's the first time that's ever. At least in the present day, that that's happened for a Disney fi- for a Disney song because it's always been the weak covers. Well, uh, it's weird because songs from plays or musicals used to kind of become hits. You know, back in the sixties and seventies, you would have things like, you know, I don't know how to love him from Jesus Christ Superstar, which became a radio hit. Um, day by day from uh, 
Godspell. from Jesus Christ Superstar, or excuse me, yeah, or from Godspell, Godspell excuse yeah. me, ah! uh, <laughs> became a hit. And you know, so there's songs like that. The song uh, "One Night in Bangkok" was a yes. hit from uh, from Chess. That's the and, only thing anybody remembers about that musical. But yes, unless you're obsessed with musicals, that's I love that musical. <laughs> that's fun. Even "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina" from Evita kind of became a hit. And so it, it's it's that you know it's kind of it's come out of fashion, but it's kind of cool that that Frozen has done that again. And partially, it's because they got actual songwriters. I mean, the people who wrote the music to Frozen mm-hmm. were the people that wrote the music for Book of Mormon. Yeah. And Avenue Q. I, God I, help me that they need to never make a movie for Avenue Q. They don't. <laughs> yeah, they don't. No. They they need to do what what's been su- what we suggest what was suggested with Book of Mormon, which is just film it. I'll, I'll be fine watching a filmed version of it. But um, that's another one where I listened to just the soundtrack mm-hmm. and read the plot synopsis and still was able to follow it perfectly well. Yeah, they're about to. Uh, they're about. They're working on the film for uh, Into the Woods, which is another one of my favorite musicals. It'll be interesting to see if that succeeds. Rob Marshall, who did uh, Chicago, is directing, which does yeah. give some hope. But and uh, if you want to see the stage play of that, it's actually on Netflix streaming, and ooh. I highly recommend it. Oh, nice. Yeah. But yeah, I know. I know that's. I know that's 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 the big one that's coming from. Uh, it'll be out uh, at uh, Christmas. I know. And, By the uh, way, I have to know. Yeah, Robert Lopez and Kristen Lopez Anderson, they win the Oscar for best Oscar speech ever. That's my favorite Oscar speech. Oh, I don't remember their Oscar speech. Uh, it, they had it all worked out. We have so many people to thank. Luckily, everybody's name rhymes. Adina Menzel. Kristen Bell. Jennifer Lee. Peter Del V. Chris Buck. Chris Beck. John Lasseter. Happy, Happy Oscars, Oscars to you. Let's, Let's do Frozen, Frozen 2. Too. Tom McDougal. Chris Montan. Aremus. Metzger. Besterman. The Anderson. And the Lopez clan. John Groff. Josh Gad. Mom, Mom and Dad. John Bazzetti and our team back east. And Kate, Brooklyn, and last but not least... Our girls. Katie and Annie, this song is inspired by our love for you and the hope that you never let fear or shame keep you from celebrating the unique people that you are. Thank you. We love you. We love you. Thank you. It had a rhyme scheme. They actually wrote it like a song. Uh, oh, excellent. But it was, I... the, it was the cutest damn thing. Good, good. I I would I would hope that. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, that was the moment where uh, Lopez uh, went EGOT. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm sure he was pretty happy about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. One of the things I want to note before we uh, we kind of strayed away from the Miserable a little bit. Um, one of the things I want to note before you get out of that though is. Yeah, the difference between it and, say, producers or rent as far as the way it was made. Because it is a very different... It does feel like one of those uh, Fathom event type of things where they where they film the stage play, except it happens to take place you know, in the location that you're supposed to be in in your imagination when you watch a play. Yeah. Um, good. Basically, they just made it with a lot more good. Right, right, exactly. Uh, but yeah, there are very long shots where they, you know, it's the first one that hit me and that kind of set up, okay, this is this is the movie that I'm watching, and this is the type of movie that I'm watching, is 
the number with uh, Hugh Jackman, Jean Valjean, after, like, while he's in the church and after he has been... Oh, yeah. Yeah. After he steals the candlesticks and, you know, the... Actually, he was given the candlesticks. He stole everything else. <laughs> true, true. But yeah, after, after that happens and he sings, you know, the song about, you know, what he should do with this and, you know, if he should go straight or if he should, like, what. Uh, it's basically a long shot of him pacing back and forth in the hallways of this place and it's, uh, it's beautifully done. But it's one of those. Oh yeah, okay. This is the, this is the type of movie that I'm watching. What the film? What that film realized that it needed to do was to get the hell out of its way and focus on the performances. Right. Exactly. And so the film does not stand in the way of the performances, but also realizes that that the performances have to be tapered to film. So mm-hmm. you have Anne Hathaway crying and messing up the notes and blah 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 if you hear the original like patty lapone uh les mis on stage the scene where she's dying there's no way that woman's about to die she is belting (laughs) that song yeah but that's because she has to hit one of you know hit the back row of of a huge theater right uh and so you don't do that when you're going to die on film. So yeah, it just it gets the hell out of its own way and just lets the performers do what they what they got paid to do. Yeah, which is really cool because I felt it had the dramatic acting in a stage play while at the same time being you know it could be intimate. Mm-hmm. You know, it can have the intimacy of film, which was a nice yeah, you know, it was a nice draw for the medium. It really worked. Also, can't get out of this without knowing that Sasha Baron Cohen and uh, I am shit at names right now. I'm sorry. Helena Bonham Carter. Helena Bonham Carter. Thank you. Are in it as a pair. Yeah. I was. I was genuinely surprised when I saw him. Well, and I will say, uh, so I've. I, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of his gotcha movies. You know, right, the right. rats and the stuff. But he does something so subtle in this film. Mm-hmm. And the fact that when he's dealing with the public, he's putting on a French accent. When he's dealing with his family, he has sort of this Cockney accent. And he's just sort of, he weaves how he speaks to the people he's speaking because, you know, he's not, he's not a real person. And it's just, you go, that's, that's good work. Right well, he there. did, he did uh, something similar with uh, Sweeney Todd, uh, where, as uh, Pirelli, that's kind of built into the show, though. So we had uh, I did, I know. that didn't yeah. catch me as much. I figured as much, obviously. But yeah, yeah. Just saying, he might have yeah. might have thought that yeah. might have thought that acting choice over from that. Yeah, yeah, you're very right, though. You're very right. I I really like uh, Sasha Baron Cohen as an actor. It's a shame that his Freddie Mercury movie is not going to happen. It's I, not. Oh. It lost funding. Yeah. Shit. Well, basically, what happened is Queen said no. The oh. drummer for Queen said no, I believe. That's I a think, disappointment. Yeah. That's criminal because Cohen actually physically is a. Uh, it's a match. I mean, on every level, he would have been a superb choice. I I understand that they care about the image and all, but um, and I the worst part was I know it was a script by Peter Morgan. Uh, very talented writer. Um, yeah, I've heard what happened, and it's it is a real shame. Uh, 
On the other hand, we do have the uh, Tom Hardy starring biopic of uh, Elton John to look forward to. Yeah. Yes. Which I'm really actually genuinely looking forward to. I think that's going to be really interesting. Oh, yeah. Especially because Hardy is such a chameleonic actor. Again, we, we will we will at some point, we have no place on the schedule to do the Batman films, but we will at some point. We will at some point. Of course we will. Yeah. But. In some form or another. We're yeah. two-thirds of them over on my movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. That is true. Um, anybody have, I mean, where should we go? Where should we go? I mean, we've noted that. Right now, in terms of major musicals, you've got Jersey Boys coming later on this summer, which I am interested in, especially because of Eastwood doing it. Yeah. I really like his directorial career. Yeah, Eastwood just understands cinema, so I think it's going to work really well. Mm -hmm. And because this is, and the thing about it is, this is music that he really loves. Um, It. I, I know this is a style of music that he really loves, and I think he's exactly the right person to do it. I've never seen his uh, movie on uh, Charlie Parker, but I know that that's known to be one of the best biopics. So, uh, you know, of a musician and of an artist. So, I have hope for this. Uh, I have hope for Into the Woods, mostly because it does have a really good cast. But I, I, I think that. I mean, I don't know. Is is there another Chicago-style renaissance in the offing spurred on by the fact that Les Miserables did make a ton of money? We do need to note that. It made a mint. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did. It's it's interesting because a lot of my friends just came out of the woodwork and, and just said, yeah, I absolutely love this. Like, there's almost like a cult, like a new cult following behind it. I remember one of my one of my coworkers straight just said, "Have you seen Les Mis?" I was like, "Wow, Les Mis! You're nicknaming it already." It's like I get that's the that's the actual official nickname for it, but at the same time, it's like, "Wow, okay." I mean, I realized this thing was so huge. <laughs> I, I just I don't know. I mean, I think that I think the genre always has potential. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's. I think there's always room for good ones, and I think audiences will always show up if one works. Absolutely. That gives me hope, because I I love musicals. I absolutely love musicals, unashamedly. I kind of alluded to the fact that there was a major thing that helped keep the musical afloat in the 1990s, but which we cannot discuss yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate the fact that I'm dropping so many hints for what's coming later this year, but isn't that kind of the fun of the podcast? It is. Again, we, we I want to remind people, we have these things scheduled out months in advance. <laughs> we know what we're doing in November, okay? Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, it's not firm set in stone, but we right. pretty much know what we're doing, so... And this cast that I'm alluding to, come hell or high water, we're doing. I mean, as I said, I yeah, there. You know, the genre always there's always there's always room for it. It's just a matter of what makes money and what doesn't. Same thing as everything else in the industry. So yeah, the musicals alive and well, in some form or another. And again, you know, Broadway continues to be just thriving. So. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's always that as the R&D form for it. <laughs> yeah. 
there's always talk of doing Wicked. My thoughts on if they should do it uh, mm. kind of vary. I think, you know, Wicked is Wicked is sort of magical realism. I kind of I kind of feel like for some of these things, like even maybe Into the Woods, I almost wonder if you'd be better off just animating them. Hmm. We know we have a friend, actually. Uh, Alan and I have a friend, uh, Tim, uh, if you're listening, heads up to you, who yeah. argued for, uh, for animating Wicked. I, I think it would work. I mean, there was talk uh, back in the, uh, I guess, early 2000s of the first version of Into the Woods that was really getting around the rounds was uh, they were going to use for all of the the fairy tale creatures. They were going to use Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Yes, I remember that. Mm, That's would have been a that was a great idea. Yeah, I I mean I honestly I think animation could be fainted to much more often than it is, and mm-hmm. I I think that that would be the angle to take. Um, I, I can't help more superhero movies would be done in animation because they kind of are anyway. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that's why I think that's why DC has such success with their direct to video animated films, which are which I'm actually quite high on. I, I like a good deal of those. Yeah, they dominate right now in that in that department. Well, yeah. It's because Marvel's too busy, <laughs> too busy printing money by putting guys in blue tights. Right. <laughs> yes, and as long as they do that, I will be there. Yeah. Yes. Who wins? You do. Yeah, really. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, as I said, I mean, that, that, that's my thoughts on the topic. Uh, I, I think the musical is going to end. It's just kind of like the Western and the fact it's a genre that is never going to go away. It, it might, we might go for a while between having a good one and a bad one, but I mean, you know, as soon as you think the Western's dead, you get unforgiven. Yeah. Or, or in recent years, True Grit. Yo, that True Grit was amazing. I, uh, I there's a chance I, uh, I saw it at, uh, an, at a press screening in Little Rock. And yeah, that, that was, that was as solid an entry as that genre could have hoped to have had in the recent years. Right. And so proof good. that remakes are not necessarily inherently a bad thing. Right. It's, although it's funny, that's the only time that I've heard someone say, yeah, we want to remake it to be closer to the book. And then they actually did that. That was actually what they did with it. Yeah. But again, you know, kind of coming from a theatrical background, I don't necessarily think that remakes are, they have to be a bad thing. No. no. New casts in, you know, New casts do plays all the time. I mean, if plays only got done once, then nobody would ever remember them. And right. so, you know, a, a f- just because a film gets, you know, cast and somebody else wants to put their view on it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. And you're right. I mean, it will be like the Western. It's there. No, everything is always dead. So until somebody realizes that there's money in it or until somebody has an idea. That, that makes other people give a shit, which is what makes money. Exactly. That's a better way of putting when I, that's a better way of putting it. So yeah, JJ, uh, want to thank you for coming on. Yes. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, want to thank, uh, Will Benz for, uh, suggesting yeah. our guest. Yeah. Literally. That's what it came down to was Will said, Hey, could you guys combine uh, the things that I like so that I can uh, keep from multitasking? <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> and the next All thing right. you know, we're a full-on Voltron robot. That's right. That's the, next, the next one we were doing anyway was musical, so it's like, hey, JJ's in the theater. Why doesn't he join us on that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, if people ask us suggestions, we'll listen, and we'll probably carry them through. That's what we like to do. Uh, mm-hmm. We just like the fact that people are listening. Uh, like any podcast. But, and, um... Speaking of podcasts, we should also uh, plug JJ's podcast. Yes, that was yeah, that's a good next step. Yeah. JJ, tell us about your podcast. Uh, well, I do a podcast uh, on the website of Doom called Mars Needs Podcasts, which is just uh, me with whoever I can wrangle to talk for about an hour about whatever we feel like talking about. As a matter of fact, the episode that will end up going up probably later today, uh, I plug this and I end up talking a little bit about how much I hate rent. Um, awesome! Awesome! <laughs> and uh, we will, and we will definitely link link to your cast, and uh, and also if it's if since this is film based, I will say that also my friend Aaron and I once a month do a show called The Drive In of Doom, where we are looking at films based on comics, and uh, we do a it's quasi commentary on the fact that we are we have the film on. While we are discussing the film, some things will be scene specific, but it also there's a lot of film there, so we also wander off topic and talk about what we had for lunch and uh, <laughs> whatever comes to mind. It's one of those things that if you want to watch the film as we are doing it, you will probably get a little bit more of an idea of what we're talking about. It, uh, if a lot of people, if you know the film, will just listen to it, you know, as a podcast, and that's nice. perfectly acceptable as well. Sorry. Right. An impromptu commentary track. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Because, well, we're both comic book bu- uh, buffs. We're both uh, we both speak the language of film, so we decided, hey, yeah, and it's once a month, so it's not a big commitment for anybody. Right. No, I, the last I, one we just did was Hellboy Two, so we've now done Hellboy and Hellboy Two. Cool. And before that, the month before that, we did Robert Altman's Popeye. Oh, oh nice, nice. nice. <laughs> But yeah, uh, you can you can find us on our blog at thefilmroom.poppy.com. You can find blog links there. We will link to JJ's casts and and other reference materials. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at at filmroomcast. Our individual Twitters are Austin is at Untitled User. I am at Permanent Man PRD, and JJ is at JJ Hawkins. Because um, I keep things simple. <laughs> We will we will also throw up a link to the website of Doom. That is an excellent site. I write for the site, even though I haven't written in like anything in like a year. <clears throat> but is is an excellent site. I do recommend uh, checking out all the all the podcasts and articles on there. Find us on our Facebook at facebook.com slash the film room. Of course we are on iTunes. Like, comment, subscribe. Podcasts yep. always like comments. Any podcast, anytime, feedback makes us feel good. And we will respond. Let yeah. me make this clear. We respond. We do. We Even work. if I don't respond, I always, it makes my day. So, Yeah, exactly. And I mean to respond. I just like, oh, I should wait till I get home, and then I forget because I'm a jerk. <laughs> but always, always listening. Yep. Um, oh, yes, I forgot one. Uh, you can email us at uh, filmroompodcast at gmail.com. 
please use it. All I get, all I get are YouTube updates and uh, Twitter Twitter follower updates, which we have been garnering followers, which is cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, please. I mean, we 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 we're really pleased with what we're doing on this cast. We're really enjoying it, and uh, mm-hmm. we hope y'all are enjoying it. Uh, what's next? Do you have the schedule at hand? I can bring it up. It might be another guest cast. We have a lot of guests this year, which I like. Mm. Oh, actually, the next one is poor ad campaigns. This uh, is one that we've been wanting to do for a long time. We're attacking we're attacking the trailers and the posters that just don't sell you the goods. And my theory is that a lot of is that everybody knows when bad movies are uh, hyped to make look good. I'm especially going to turn my eye to when good movies suffer this fate because it happens a lot. It kind of happened on Frozen for like the first trailer. I yeah. really thought, honestly, I was not that stoked about seeing Frozen because I was—I swear to God, I thought that the uh, the reindeer was going to talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I assumed that the snowman was going to be ridiculously cutesy, as opposed to just so wonderfully laissez-faire, relaxed, and just very Josh Gad in Book of Mormon, minus the profanity. Yeah, yeah, you care. <laughs> yeah, I. I, I mean, yeah, I still think, despite what the box office would tell you, I still think the bo- the ad campaign on Frozen was a debacle, and uh, mm-hmm. somebody at Disney should have been fired. Versus, they'll probably be getting promoted over that. So, but yeah, that's that's next up. That's going to be a fun cast for us. Uh, but aren't they all fun casts? Oh yeah. <laughs> so, I'm Austin Shen. I'm a world fun. I'm JJ Hawkins. Thanks. See you later. Later. Singing the song of angry men. It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Will you join our crusade? Stand with me Beyond the barricade Is there a world you long to see? Then join in the fight That will give you the right to be free Do you hear the people sing? Singing the song of angry men It is the music of the
last night, I had a dream. I found myself in a desert called Cyberland. Out of the abyss walked a cow, Elsie. I asked if she had anything to drink. She said, 